You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hello, John. How are you? Hi, Glenn. What's up? Oh, man, I'm depressed. I'm depressed. <laughs> we were just talking about that. <laughs> Glenn Lowry here, Glenn Show, bloggingheads.tv and patreon.com forward slash Glenn Show with my conversation partner every other week, John McWhorter, Columbia University. I teach at Brown University. We're the black guys. And uh, we were just figuring out what we were going to talk about, John. And we were just checking in with one another. I'm depressed. I don't know. I'm I'm at the end of a semester. Do you get this thing at the end of a semester where you can't really wait for it to be over and where it seems like tasks that had been just ordinary tasks are becoming more and more onerous and, you know, you're kind of gasping for air and and wondering if you're going to be prepared for class and student papers are coming in and they have to be evaluated. And, you know, it's been just a long slog here in this pandemic impacted uh, teaching season. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's that, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, I need cheering up, John. What can you tell me? Well, you know, that's hard at this point because um, I'm not usually feeling utterly worn out at the end of a semester in that way. But definitely this semester, I have the same feeling because, you know, I guess we're, we're I get the feeling there's this tacit notion that we professors aren't supposed to talk about this that much. And I think it's Partly, because especially if you have jobs like ours, we're such lucky people. We really have no right to complain about anything. But Zoom teaching, to me, is just hideously unsatisfying. It's like trying to sing a song underwater. It's harder to get through to most of the students. I find it physically uncomfortable. I don't like looking at myself on a screen. I don't feel like I really know the students because they're just a bunch of squares. And um, you have to do a lot of reformatting, and at least for the sorts of things I need to do, that means that courses that fr- uh, lectures, which at this point I can practically do by heart, at standing in front of a blackboard because I've been doing it for 25 years, you don't have the blackboard, and so you have to come up with different ways of getting things across. Inevitably, they're not as effective, and um, I find it exhausting and unsatisfying, and I wake up not wanting to do my job. And I get the sense from a lot of my colleagues that what I'm supposed to say is, well, it's imperfect, but it's better than nothing. But for me, doing this for the third semester in a row, I've had it. I've had enough. And in the fall, I am going down to halftime and I'm not going to teach any actual courses because I've just decided I am never again going to teach another course via Zoom. I really, really, really don't like it. So, yeah, that's my life. Right is now. the halftime thing going to be permanent or is that just for that semester? No, just for fall. So that in the spring, unless something extraordinary happens in the spring, we'll be able to be in rooms and not have to teach with a piece of cloth on our faces because, you know, quote unquote, everybody will be vaccinated. I don't want to teach again until I can do it in a room full of living people. And so I'm going to just take the salary cut in the fall. I am not going to teach to the Hollywood squares. I'm not doing it for a fourth semester. And I feel kind of bad about it, but, um, No, I've had enough. So I know what you mean. I've really had it with teaching being what you and me are doing. You know, you you and me have been doing this forever, but I never thought I would be teaching a course in this format. I've just had enough. So I'm teaching three courses this semester because I was off in the fall thinking that my wife and I would spend uh, the semester in Toulouse where we have friends and I had an open invitation to come and visit as a scholar. 
So I arranged for my teaching to be in the spring semester, but the Toulouse arrangement was before the pandemic. And then when the pandemic hit, we had to cancel going to Toulouse in the fall. Uh, but I didn't teach. And so now I'm, I'm just overwhelmed with the, with the thing. Um, I've got a PhD level course in uh, economic theory, which is the easiest of the three that I'm doing to teach by this method because my students are not, none of them are on campus. They're, they're in India or China or uh, the UK or uh, Argentina. They're scattered all over the place. They're not, they're not here. And what I do is I record lectures uh, and I do have a blackboard. I mean, I have a tablet. It's an electronic whiteboard that I can write on that projects in the uh, recorded image so the students can see equations being produced, graphs being drawn, and so on. That's a big help. Uh, but there's no face-to-face encounter with the students. There's no extended back and forth of Q&A. You know, that I, it's asynchronous. They're looking at it in their own time, not, ever, not all together. There's no question coming in that the other kid was thinking, I wanted to ask that question, but I didn't, you know, I didn't feel safe to ask it. But someone asked the question and then I could explain to the benefit of all who might have been thinking about that. I missed this so much. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. not so I'm doing a seminar I've mentioned here on a number of occasions on free speech, free inquiry, and where we're reading classics like Plato and Milton and John Stuart Mill and so on. That's going famously well. That is Hollywood Squares. It's 20. It's 20 self-selected, eager kids. It meets at 9 a.m. on Tuesday and Thursday, and attendance is 100% every time with uh, these 20 kids. We've gotten to know each other, and, you know, people feel free. There's the hand raise function. There's a queue. They can comment. It's a discussion seminar type uh, course, and it is not, I think, much diminished being synchronous, having a hundred percent attendance rate, being accountable to one another, getting the, to know one another. There's, it's a seminar. Kids can talk at some length. We have, I have them doing um, concept papers or kind of reaction papers to each week's reading, you know, three paragraphs, 250 words, whatever, in terms of your thinking about what we read this week that they turn in every week. I have a very Cracker Jack teaching assistant who assists me with uh, you know, assessing these papers and whatnot. And it's scintillating. There's never a dull moment. I mean, it's it's going, it would be better face-to-face, but it's like 90% of what it could yeah. be. Yeah. You know, Which, I should refine what I said because I have that same seminar. I have a seminar with a dozen really bright and committed students. We have good discussions, same thing with the reflection papers. And I hate to admit that I like this, but the chat function means that there's always this sort of second class going on where they're kind of talking to each other and throwing little questions at me. And that actually makes it better. And yeah, it would be better if we were all sitting in a room and we could eat a little something, but it is close. And I don't dread that class because it still works. If it's only a certain number of people, yeah. And if they're committed and the attendance is good, what I really don't like is when the class gets it's bigger than that, and it's a lecture format. Discussion is fine. Lecture, homeworks, I find it's just it, the format doesn't work. And I've got a 300-student class, for example. So, um, yeah, seminar, okay. Class, class, no. I imagine you might feel the same way. Imagine, like, teaching Intro to Economics 101 with this. 
you know, well, my third course is a lecture course. It's got 70. Uh, Do you find that it's different? Oh, yeah. It's, it is uh, 30% maybe or 40% of what it could be. Um, it's, you know, uh, I don't lecture for an hour twice a week the way that I would. What I do is I, I use pre-recorded videos and I also use content, including content at the Glenn show that I think is relevant to the subject matter, race, crime and punishment in America. You know, what about what are you going to do about the George Floyd situation? You know, what about stop and frisk? What about broken windows? You know, what about mass incarceration? What about the new Jim Crow and, and all of that? And so there's a lot of content that's out there that I can marshal and bring to the students' attention. We, mm-hmm. we meet in a synchronous meeting once a week, but my attendance there is, you know, if I'm lucky, 35 of the 70 will have uh, logged on for the meeting. <laughs> in fact, the uh, the interface that I have, we have here for uh, communicating with the students and the class, posting teaching materials and such, uh, putting up videos and such, allows me to uh, note how many hours in the semester each student has logged on to the site. Mm-hmm. This is a semester we've been going for, what, 10 weeks now or whatever? Uh, some students are, you know, like 30 hours, that's three hours a week. That's pretty good. Cause class is 80 minutes twice a week. Some students are like six hours, you know, they, I mean, they, they, if I'm mailing in the lecture by posting something that I did at uh, blogging heads, uh, you know, two years ago, they're mailing in the response to the lecture <laughs> by, uh, you know, putting their toe in the water, but not really diving into the material. But the thing that I miss is discussion, uh, which I can't do with 70 uh, kids by, you know, I end up with these sentences that just dangle out there. So we have just uh, encountered an interesting argument by so-and-so. And and here are three questions that I might put to you about that argument, and we can kick them around. And then there'll be these pregnant silences that go on for a long time. Then I say, okay, well, rather than those three questions here, let me let me put something in front of you. And, you know, somebody might raise their hand. They might talk for a minute or two. But the spontaneous kind of uh, energy of a collectivity of people all together in a room, you know, kind of being galvanized by the person who's at the center of the conversation to engage with each other, to engage with each other, not just with me, you know. It, it's it's uh, only a shadow of, of what it might be, so... That one's not going so well. I'm not doing it again. I've just decided I'm lucky. I can I can afford it. And yeah, it's just I feel like I'm letting the students down. And it's also that um, in that setting, I try very hard not to. So I try to use whatever performance genes I have. But it's work. I mean, by the end, you know, I have to do an hour and 15. By the end of it, I feel like a vaudevillian who's walking off into the wings, sweating his makeup off or something like like to really hold that ball up in the air when you are not in the room and you can't rely on the resonance of the walls and everybody's smelling each other. Yeah. It's, it's work. And, um, I've been willing to do that work for three semesters, but I'm, I'm, I'm done. I, I, I refuse to keep doing that when I get the feeling it's going to be people erring on the side of caution, which I understand, but you know, everybody's vaccinated everybody's clean. 
And yet still, I feel like they're going to make us do that again. And I just say, no, 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 no. Now you, you have been vaccinated. Have you not? I had my first shot last week and I'm going to have my second one in a few. And, you know, by September, I'm going to consider myself clean. And, you know, especially in our world and our, in our states, everybody we deal with is going to be, is going to be clean. I'm not going to do zoom classes clean and I can feel that that's where it's going. And so just no enough. And so I will advise students. I will be present. I will have office hours over goddamn zoom. I will keep playing along. I will, we have about 15 senior theses coming up. I will, I might do them all by myself. That will be my contribution to the linguistics program. And if that has to be over zoom, okay, but no more imparting information. I'm, I'm, well, I'm he's done. drawing a but line. You know, so yeah, our listeners probably are waiting for us to talk about the issues of the day as opposed to complaining about our paradise jobs. And so well, <laughs> maybe I, we should move on. I, I went around and got myself vaccinated on Saturday, and I've got a, an appointment for the second Pfizer shot in three weeks. So, um, uh, yeah, what I was going to uh, talk about was not Zoom. I was the thing that is not our agenda that I was going to bring to your attention was the equity or inequity of access to the vaccine. Oh, yeah. And this kind of thing that goes on where have you been vaxxed? Have you been fully vaxxed? Oh, yeah, I have too. Come on, let's get together and have dinner. Let's have a drink. So there's this kind of thing that happened. And the people who live here in Rhode Island, which is an hour's drive from the Massachusetts border, who have managed because Massachusetts has different rules than Rhode Island has to get themselves vaccinated in Massachusetts. I'm not sure exactly how they do that. Instead of Mm -hmm. people who are giving phony addresses in order to be able to qualify for access to the vaccine, people who are calling up their friend who has a who's a doc in a clinic that does infectious disease stuff and getting themselves on the roster to get vaccinated uh, and so on. Uh, And it just seems like the people who, at least in my social circle, who are the most resourceful people, it's almost like a badge of honor. I got vaxxed. I got vaxxed early. I got vaxxed. We're vaxxed. We're safe. Just feels to me a little bit of yeah. privilege, a little bit of privilege. Yeah, it's been um it's been really not right how here in New York City getting vaccinated is this this kind of crapshoot where you have to know quite how to do it by talking to your friend. You might know a doctor. You might know somebody who knows some tricks. You might slip into a Walgreens because somebody knows that something opened up. But yeah, once I decided, you know, and it's interesting, the stories that are going to be told, people of my demographic, it started to be, are you vaccinated yet? I am. Something tipped about two weeks ago, including people who are not over 60. And I said, well, okay, I guess I'm going to do it. And it was hard. I had to talk to a lot of people. And ultimately, the way I slipped in was by somebody who just kind of knew where to look and happened to find something that happened to be right near where I live. And that's how I got vaccinated. This is not the way it should be. And yes, there's a privilege involved because, you know, the person who did it for me is somebody of this demographic who knows certain things and who knows me and lives in my neighborhood. And if that if I hadn't known her. I don't think I'd be vaccinated now because nothing I tried was working out. You know, call this number and they never have anything. Or it's always on Staten Island and nobody knows where that is. And so now, now I'm going to hear from people from Staten Island. It's a wonderful place, folks, but it, it's hard to get to. And so, yes, I can imagine how hard this is. And I know how hard this is for other people. Yeah, it's 
it's talk about privilege, talk about societal racism, even this is what I think people mean. Yeah. And it's it has saddened me to see it. Not to mention people making up medical conditions. I've seen that, too. And really? And you get away with it. But I'll bet it would be harder for a person of lower socioeconomics to get away with that sort of thing. It's just, yeah, it's been a, it's been hard to watch. Definitely. Yeah. Okay, so we're the black guys who are supposed to talk about black stuff. Are you okay with that, John? We talk about race every week. I mean, are we are we That's our job. It's our job. Okay. That's how people expect. Well, are we gonna talk about us. Palestine? No, let's Yeah. <laughs> That's right. If you dare. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever happened to the NAACP? That was your question when we were doing a pre uh consultation before this call. Whatever happened to the Urban League, the National Urban League? Whatever happened to the old school civil rights movement? Who is the president of the National Urban League or of the NAACP? I frankly, to be honest with you, with respect to whoever it is, I don't know. I used to know. I don't want to admit. I would have known 20 years ago. I don't know now. I'm I'm embarrassed to say that, actually. Is it just? Yeah. Uh, but there's a reason. Yeah, I, there is indeed uh, the election of Barack Obama. Did that uh, the, the rise of the Al Sharptons of the world? Uh, is it Black Lives Matter and the kind of spontaneous street protest phenomenon and the energy? Is it a generational thing? The NAACP is your grandfather's civil rights movement. It's not. It's not my civil rights movement. Is it? You know, in effect, uh, aging out. You know, the people who are doing that kind of stuff are, you know, older than me, and I'm old. It's a genuine question because when I started commenting on race, if that's what it's called, and you can date that to roughly 1999, one of the main things on your radar screen was the NAACP. You knew who was running it. You followed the statements from it and its positions on anything. And that continued well into the aughts, you know, quasi Fume or quasi, as many people said for some reason. Mm -hmm. He was, you know, a rock star. You know, Julian Bond had already been a rock star and he continued to be one something happens after benjamin jealous the media covered him a lot partly because he was so young and he was also just very interesting but after after that the naacp starts to fall off of the national radar screen and that's an interesting question as to why another question is what what one would like them to do now i think social media is part of it twitter becomes default in 2009 and then you're right Black Lives Matter, Ferguson, and before that, Trayvon. That's all 2013-14. That makes the NAACP seem like Martin Luther King compared to Malcolm X. The, the idea is that the real race work is somebody under 30 staring down a cop in Ferguson and then starting a blog and tweeting a lot. And I'm not trying to, to ridicule that DeRay McKesson kind of person, but that becomes the main thing. And the NAACP was never – all that vocal, the national NAACP during all of that. And the National Urban League, I went to several of their events in Manhattan in the aughts. They mattered. I knew people in it. But that's changed, too. I really don't know. And part of it is the media doesn't cover them, but then the question becomes why, especially since this includes the black media at this point. Yeah, there's been a real change. The NAACP is now Twitter. Black Twitter, maybe, or, or it's Black Lives Matter or something. But yeah, there's a real change from the old days. Hmm. Does it matter? Do we care? Is something not going on that should be going on? What's the purpose of a civil rights organization uh, in, today's, uh, in today's world? 
Is it protecting voting rights? Well, that could be. And uh, if you think that they they, need protecting, which I do at this point, I'm not sure how you feel about that at this point, but. Oh, God. Okay. So it's motherhood and apple pie. Um, you know, uh, the voter, uh, what do they call it? Voter suppression. The Republicans mm-hmm. don't want black people to vote. And, um, the Voting Rights Act was not, um, uh, what happened. The Supreme Court, uh, held that the preclearance requirement of the Voting Rights Act 1965 as renewed which required certain jurisdictions to have to get the approval of the Justice Department uh, or a federal court before they could make changes in the administration of their elections, jurisdictions in the South, mm-hmm. jurisdictions which are, where the court held that uh, the uh, those strictures uh, could be relaxed unless it could be demonstrated that the current situation on the ground in those jurisdictions, like in the Southern states, were uh, of such a nature as to cause there to be a, a concern or presumption about discrimination and access to voting. The court required mm-hmm. a demonstration of the empirical relevance of the general presumption that there was a threat to voting rights. And this is, you know, taken by progressives as a setback to the, you know, it certainly is a weakening of the enforcement apparatus. And then the presumption that Republican state legislatures, Republican governors changing the rules, requiring ID, not standing up enough uh, places, being you know strict about early voting, about ballot harvesting, about the placement of you know uh, ballot box uh, drop off points and stuff like that, and then they put rules in place. And the argument is, you see, they're trying to keep black people from voting. Um, no, I, I'm not on board completely with the the fervor to you know it's the new Jim Crow. I believe that's what. Uh, 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 Stacey Abrams. Michelle Alexander. Yeah, Michelle Alexander is the author of The New Jim Crow. That's a book about mass incarceration, but that's I'm about, saying, yeah, prison. If you look at the speeches of uh, the Stacey Abrams and company yeah. about the current issue, state of Georgia proposals to make mm-hmm. changes mm-hmm. to voting law in light of the 20, uh, 2020 election. Uh, the argument is this is just Jim Crow with a suit on. This is, you know, instead of a Klansman. They're wearing a suit now and they're calling themselves lawmakers. But in fact, all they're doing is the same old thing. And yeah, I think that's overstatement by a vast uh, extent. Um, this is not uh, literacy tests. This, this is not uh, uh, a terror that's keeping people from the from the polling place. This is often entirely arguable questions about policy regarding the administration of the process of voting. And those policies do have different consequences. So if I require ID, I'm imposing a cost on people who don't have ID that they have to get the ID before they can cast their ballot. There could be a demographic disparity in who does and doesn't have ID. Those costs could be more onerous for people who are poor or older or impaired in one way or another. And so any statement that I make about the voting law can always be calculated in terms of what the consequence of that change will have for the racial composition of the electorate to frame a discussion about any change in the voting law entirely in terms of the consequences for the racial composition of the electorate and to impute motives to those who want to change the law, which are invidious in terms of their wanting to disenfranchise, I think is 
you know, politics as usual, you know, uh, gerrymandering. This is another thing, you know, drawing districts to protect incumbents. And, you know, that so so I'm not I'm not as uh, alarmed by the fact that some changes in voting laws like requiring ID might have a disparate incidence in terms of it adversely affecting access of African-Americans to the polls. I don't regard that as a slam dunk refutation of the concern Mm -hmm. about uh, wanting to have people present proper ID before they can cast the ballot. There's no such thing as voter fraud. Well, it doesn't have to be. If someone told me I'm locking my bicycle and someone told me there hasn't been a bicycle stolen on the street uh, in five years, and I still want to lock my bicycle because I want my bicycle to be secure. That's not racism to want to lock my bicycle if the people on the street are black. I just want to lock my bicycle. Likewise, I'd say if I wanted to be assured that anyone casting a ballot was certified to do so, and I asked them to present an ID like I would if they wanted to get on an airplane or open a bank account or whatever, that's racism. Well, you know, and in my mind, and I'll stop. I know I'm going on for a long time, Jen. I apologize. The easiest response to someone who wants to have a voter ID restriction is to get IDs for people who don't yes. have IDs because they need them anyway for life. They, they need yeah. them to be able to have access to all kinds of functioning, not just mm-hmm. uh, access to the ballot box. So um, it's political. Both the Republican legislatures and the Democrats who are objecting to any change in voting laws that they calculate might have a negative incidence on uh, African-American participation. I see it largely through a lens of uh, partisan uh, politics being fought out amongst other places uh, with respect to the rules about voting. I, um, it's a very rich issue because very often I tend to say we are overestimating the extent to which we're expecting every American to be exquisitely sensitive to the concerns of black people. And one piece of evidence to that effect is that so many Republican politicians are comfortable with a policy where what they're transparently trying to do, I don't think that they're genuinely concerned with voter fraud or trying to err on the side of caution. They have figured out that practically all black people vote Democrat and that therefore, if they keep as many black people from voting as possible, then it's more likely that a Republican will wind up in office. And what they're trying to do is by hook or crook to create a Republican hegemony, and they'll do it by any means necessary. And they don't care that what they're doing to the black vote is in itself harmful to black people. As far as they're concerned, okay, we make it so some people can't vote. And of course, no one's getting shot. No one's being hung from a tree. But still, I can see how a person might say, still, the idea here is to keep Black people from voting via, in this case, a a mendacious supposed concern with all but non-existent voter fraud. And it's just it's a naked Machiavellian kind of pragmatism. And yet I've had discussions with people, including in the media, where they swear that what's going on now is the same thing as before, not involving the physical violence, but it's the exact same thing. Sometimes it's black people saying it. Sometimes it's white people saying it and clearly feeling like they're showing that they've really got a certain message. And what I want to know is I always thought that the reason 
black people were prevented from voting, especially in the South back in the day, was because of open, naked bigotry, the idea that black people were subhuman and therefore had no business casting a vote. I wasn't aware, and maybe this is what it is, maybe this is something I missed, was the reason that Dixiecrats and Democrats didn't want black people to vote because they didn't like that most black people back then were going to vote for Republicans? Was it was that all it was? Because I always thought it was, no, monkeys shouldn't vote, and that that was the main thing, as opposed to, no, because they're all going to go vote for the Republicans. Because it seemed to me that even when there were no Republicans in the equation, still Democrats didn't want black people to vote at all. They didn't want there to be any kind of black power because they didn't want black people to rise up against the way they had always been treated by whites. To me, that's different. The idea that today it's the same thing doesn't work because, frankly, it isn't. What's going on today, you can call it racism in that it has a racially disparate effect. And so you can give that to today's, you know, wokesters. Okay. But back then it was done because of racist personal sentiment, I thought. Am I missing something in this? It, was it really in 1895? Did the bigoted Democrat Mississippian with the mustache, did he not want black people to vote because he didn't want to give votes to the Republicans? Or did he not want black people to vote because black people to him were guerrillas? I thought it was mostly the latter. But then again, I'm not an expert on the history of that period. Well, as you know, blacks were elected to Congress and to the United States Senate, even in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, uh, when they uh, we got the franchise. Um, And that was uh, that was shut down. And I'm assuming that they didn't want to be represented or governed by black people. That's that was the the motivation. And that did have a partisan translation, since in those days, blacks were voting Republican pretty solidly. Uh, the Democrats were the party of slavery, and then they were the party of uh, Jim Crow racism mm-hmm. and so forth, and that until relatively recently. Um, but I don't know if I accept your your bold claim that uh, the person who wants to have stricter rules about uh, absentee balloting, ballot, absentee balloting, who uh, doesn't uh, want to have uh, early voting. Uh, take place a month before the election, but only wants to have it a week before the election. Who's worried about anybody being able to collect ballots, so-called ballot harvesting, and bring them to the uh, to the election uh, official on behalf of people who supposedly can't get up and come in and vote themselves, but who have marked their ballot and signed. Mm-hmm. Who's worried about the signature verification on uh, ballots that are cast in absentee? Uh, to make sure that there is uh, appropriate security on those signatures, who wants to make sure, notwithstanding the relative lack of empirical evidence that the frequency of voter fraud is very high, nevertheless, that anybody who casts the ballot is the person who they say they are by having them present an ID, to assume that all of those people are racist or that their goal in wanting such provisions is to suppress the black vote, I think is a is a is a slander on people. I'm sure there are some racists among them. I'm sure there are people who differ, even in a homogeneous electorate, about the wisdom of having an election play out over a month rather than over a week, since events can happen when people cast their ballots. It's too late to cast them to bring them back, or who worry about uh, the possibility that um, uh, even the possibility that something might adversely affect the election. I assure you that if the shoe were on the other foot, 
if I were in a jurisdiction where the consequence of the change in law were to negatively repress low-income, mostly white voters, and the accusation was made that the purpose for doing that was uh, racial uh, animus against whites, that, that that would be greeted with skepticism by a lot of people. But we have that. We have gerrymandering to create majority minority districts to enhance the likelihood that a person of color will be elected by drawing the district line so as to create a constituency in which there is a plurality or a majority of black voters. Is that anti-white? Is it anti-white to want to see um, the um, uh, constitution of the electorate uh, undertaken in such a way that voice is given to black people by the way in which voting lines are drawn? You could say that. I don't think you'd get very far in doing so. you know, I, I think, in other words, it's a partisan conflict. People are going to use whatever the tools are that are at their disposal in order to try to advance their interests. Those interests are largely political. We can make them racial if we want to. They are not necessarily racial interests. There are Democrats and Republicans. When they draw district lines every 10 years, they're certainly calculating what's the likelihood that a Democrat or a Republican gets elected. Blacks are more likely to vote Democratic than Republican. So Republican state legislatures that draw districts to try to enhance the likelihood of Republicans could be called racist. But so too could Democrat-controlled legislatures that draw lines that uh, try to enhance the probability that Democrats and not Republicans get elected. Glenn, you know, that's you are surprising me more here than I think you have at any point in our discussions. And that includes our differing sentiments about Donald Trump in that I have taken it as as just true that not the gerrymandering, where it definitely has what you could interpret as racist effect, but there is an interpretation of it as just the lusty, cynical actions of a party that wants to be in power. But if we're talking about claims of widespread voter fraud for which there seems to be no true empirical evidence, where suddenly you have a certain kind of person who's very concerned about all these picayune little regulations that they weren't before. And it seems so obvious that one, this is not a serious enough problem to be attracting this much attention. And two, that the regulations that are being put in place are exactly those that you would use if you were thinking, hmm, people with less education slash people who live further from the polling places, i.e. out in the sticks, slash people who are older are going to be less likely to make their way through these regulations and vote. And so they'll just stay home. And the idea is to do this sort of thing, especially in, you know, majority. Majority black districts, although, of course, this might affect some poorer and older or less educated whites as well. It seems so painfully obvious that there's a certain kind of person who doesn't want black people to vote, not because he thinks black people are the N word, but because he thinks that this will give Republicans more of the vote. And I've even seen one of these people. It was back in 04. I interacted with one (laughs) and, um, you know, very bright guy. So and I was just. I was just trying to talk to him about this. I said, what is the evidence of this? You know, this was just an off the record conversation. What? I'm trying so hard not to say his name. You and I probably have both met him, but I was saying, what is you're after this? What's the evidence? And, you know, he's probably got a 200 IQ, one of these overly intelligent people. And um, he couldn't give anything. And after about half a glass of wine, I thought, yeah, they really don't have it. 
It's just that he doesn't want black people to vote. And I went off about my business. And I was thinking, it's not that he thinks black people are monkeys. It's just that, unfortunately, we all vote for one party. And he is being a, a pragmatist. So what's your answer You don't to my... think that... You don't think that there's a race angle there, even if it's not about racist animus? It's a pragmatic I, I, strategy? I think that if all you've got is that I, A, want to have signature verification of a certain sort before I accept an absentee ballot, or I want to have strict limits on who can collect ballots that they did not themselves cast and then bring them to the elector to present the votes of other people. And I want limits on that. Or I want people, as I would if they were opening in a bank account or getting on an airplane, to present a valid ID before I let them cast the ballot. And I'm quite prepared to help anybody and everybody get it. To assume that my motivation is racist, I think is slanderous. I, I, I mean, it could be. Of course, it could be racist. Well, but not, it need, well, it what, need what do you mean be. by racist? Meaning that I'm trying to keep black people. The only reason I'm doing it, here's what I mean. The only reason I'm doing it, I wouldn't be doing it if the electorate were white. I'm only doing it because I think blacks will be hurt by it. To assume that about my motivation, absent any other evidence uh, relevant to that conclusion, I think is slanderous. Uh, Because people can, even in an all-black country, there will be debates about how many weeks before the actual election date can you cast the ballot what credentials would be presented at the ballot to certify that you're authorized to vote and so forth and so on. Those are legitimate questions. And I think the idea that I have to prove the existence of widespread, note the adjective, widespread voter fraud, which presumes, of course, that you and I agree about how much is enough to afford to be widespread. And we don't. Some people will think any voter fraud is already a compromise of the system. It doesn't have to be widespread. To presume that uh, I have to demonstrate that there's widespread fraud before I lock my bicycle, because that's what's happening. I rode my bicycle to your house. Most of the people on the street are black. I get out and lock my bicycle. You tell me you're only doing it because you're a racist. You assume these people are thieves. Nobody has stolen a bicycle on the street for uh, the last 10 years that I've been living here. And I say in response to that, I'll feel better locking my bicycle. Do you mind? I'll feel better not having widespread ballot harvesting being done by people who might have nefarious motives. Do you mind? I'll feel better having the innocuous rule of presenting a voter ID for everybody uh, before they can cast a ballot. Do you mind? Glenn, if you were locking up your bike on that street, you're a racist. No, I don't think the analogy goes through. If okay. you know, nobody, no one's going to take that bike, and yet you're sitting there looking around and putting that lock on it, you have a problem with those people. And I don't think that's the proper analogy with this. I don't think that these Republicans don't like black people. They just figure that they can keep enough of us not voting to get a Republican in office. But no, it's not that you're primly locking your bike on this block where nobody ever steals anything. Why would you? That's just the thing. If the chance is that small, why are you locking the bike? Well, Stacey Abrams claims that she lost an election um, to Brian Kemp in Georgia for governor uh, because of widespread voter fraud. But my understanding, and I'm not an expert, is that there were quite a few black ballots cast in that election, more so than had been previously the case. The black electorate was robust in Georgia, not not uh, compromised by that. Uh, you could say to Stacey Abrams, and I have said this here uh, at the Glenn Show before, 
if she had modified some of her policy positions, just uh, uh, Epsilon, just a little bit toward the center of the electorate and had gotten a few tens of thousands more votes by, you know, not being as robustly pro-choice as our, on the abortion issue and splitting the difference a little bit, or being a little bit more considerate of some of the cultural conservatism of the Georgia electorate than she otherwise might have been uh, by being at the left wing of the Democratic Party. She could still be a Democrat and not be at the left wing of the Democratic Party. She'd be governor right now. So which which margin is more effective and healthier for our democracy? Fiddling around with the rules about who can cast ballots when or posturing and positioning oneself in such a way as to create a robust multiracial coalition that supports your elect your your potential to election. Um so mm-hmm. I, I I mean it's the issue of the day and like I said it's motherhood and apple pie. I stick my neck out even by saying as much as I have said. I'm not against black people voting. If it needs to be said I want black people to vote. Uh but I I don't think there is a, a war on access to the ballot. For black people, quite the contrary. And I think that, you know, Obama actually was elected. I mean, he was elected twice uh, in uh, the thing. I mean, he, you know, uh, Trump was defeated and Georgia was a big part of the defeat of, of Donald Trump and so on. And the number of blacks who are in state legislatures, who are mayors of cities, who are elected to Congress and whatnot, mm. has gone through the roof during my lifetime. Uh you know, so I think I think it's overblown. That's what I'm saying. I think it's overblown. And I'm Glenn. That's I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt to my Republican friends who are concerned about uh, voting laws that they are not doing so solely or primarily out of a, a racial motivation. I'm lefter than you. This is a very interesting example of that. You're saying that Stacey Abrams would have been better off becoming a sort of old school politician very hard to pin down as to exactly what she wants because she's building coalitions she's supposed to be this sort of you know whatever the politics of dwight d eisenhower were you know he had to thread certain lines they're liberals and conservatives in both parties you kind of wonder you know what you know what did calvin coolidge stand for and he was kind of extreme because it was all about business but that, that was about as colorful as you were allowed to get a leftist presidential candidate that was hard and it only worked in desperate times such as franklin d roosevelt and by our standards he wasn't a leftist so you're saying that she should have this kind of facelessness with the idea being that if there's progress depending on what you call progress it happens very slowly bit by bit she's steering this titanic past the iceberg everything is very slow and careful very this is burke here whereas i like the idea of a bit of fdr even in calmer times, my sense of progress is that there are things that need to happen that would be a leftward rather than a rightward shift. And I would have liked the idea of her being able to win, being her true self, rather than becoming this kind of Adlai Stevenson. But I see what you mean, and maybe your way is the only way things really happen unless people are starving in the streets. And that was not the case when Stacey Abrams lost her election. And so you're thinking she should have just calmed down and been more pragmatic and not be so, so strident in her, her Bernie broism. Yeah, I, I, I respect that view. With a light touch, I'm saying with a light touch. I mean, I'm, I'm basically saying demography needn't be destiny. It's not the only, it's not the only strategy. Moderation and positioning of a sort that attempts to construct, elicit support from a broad, uh, range of 
the electorate is another strategy. There's a there's a balancing act. We we don't have to maximize. I'm not against black people voting. Let me say it again. We don't. The the only path forward for advancement of the political interests of African Americans is not simply maximizing the headcount of black people who turn out. Come on, black people, you have to register. You have to vote. You have to go vote for your candidate. I'm not against that. Let black people register. Let them vote. But constructing coalitions that change policies that create a political context within which the goals of advancing the interests of African-Americans can be achieved. The, the only path to that is not simply having black faces in high places. The, there are, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of points here. When you draw those districts and you crowd all the black voters into a relatively few congressional districts in order to get black faces elected to the Congress, you take those black voters out of other districts which are represented by conservatives who are more conservative in virtue of the fact that they don't have to uh, elicit that's uh, a real problem yeah of of black voters yeah when when you frame the issues in front of the country largely in racial terms so as to appeal you know you make um mass incarceration as racist police trying to kill black people uh structural racism is uh is suppressing everything so and so said something out of color that they should not have said you make that the basis of your politics, what you're not talking about are the bread and butter issues that a lot of uh, working class white people might be able to get behind as well. So, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm a, there are in my view, two things that, um, enable in the sense of definition two of that word enable a certain meme in black thought culture that stresses victimhood. And I said in a previous show that there was an article about the victim complex and it giving pleasure. And I confidently sounded off about that on this show and then couldn't find it. I had read it that day and couldn't find it. Well, the truth is there is a kind of a literature on just the victimhood complex in general. And I am going to do something I don't usually do. This is in psychology. Which is that I am going to, I am going to look it up right now, one that I really enjoyed recently, and I'm going to, I am going to refer people to it because this is something I'm going to start working on. And it is, and I'm sorry, I'm dipping. Okay, here we go. Okay. Uh huh. Okay. Scientific American unraveling the mindset of victimhood. And here is a very interesting article that gathers a lot of work. Excuse me. I just want you to give the date. What? The date. Say it again, The date. The date. The date. Okay, I'm going to leave us again and look at the date. The date on this is, as Richard Pryor says, yeah, um, um, the date, it was, it was like a month ago. It, no, <laughs> it's by Scott Barry Kaufman. It's June 29th, 2020. I read it like, three weeks ago, but it really does talk about the victimhood mindset. And it's not particularly about black people, although he does mention black thought. And the reason that I'm saying this is because I am really becoming interested in the very simple question. This will get back to the voting rights act. Why do people exaggerate? I had a Japanese girlfriend 25 years ago and, you know, she was three years in the United States, didn't know much about politics and, the one thing that she could glean, and I remember thinking, boy, does that cut through a lot of it, is she said, it seems like a lot of black people exaggerate. And I thought, yes, 
It's not that racism doesn't exist, but why the exaggeration? And the answer to it is not everybody's crazy. It's not the poverty pimp. It's none of that. And we've discussed this endlessly. And I, I'm becoming interested in what psychologists think. Because let's face it, most practicing psychologists are not going to nail it and talk about black people in a real way. There is a psychological profile that stresses victimhood beyond what empiricism would demand for other reasons. And when you read about it, it's almost eerie how much it parallels a certain kind of black thought. Point being, two things most enable that victimhood mindset. One of them is the cops, is this idea that you walk around in danger of being killed by the cops all the time. And you, Glenn, have basically taught me that that's largely a myth. I really thought that was true until 2016, not to the extent a lot of people did, but I thought that the bias was clear. Now, I don't think that that bias is real. Second thing, though, is this voting thing. If you're not thinking about the cops, which is what most people are thinking about, the second idea is that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was in vain. Now they're doing it again. It's the exact same thing for the exact same reasons. That notion... And I'm not knocking Stacey Abrams. I don't think what happened to her was fair. But the idea that what's going on now is the same thing that was going on in those black and white newsreels enables this exaggeration of victimhood. And so I want to call it what it is and battle it because remove that plank and then you've only got the cops left. Get rid of the misconception about the cops, which I think is going to be harder. And I think black thought would turn a corner. Because those are the two main things that make people exaggerate the effects of racism. And notice, I'm not saying that the racism doesn't exist. And for anybody, we have our hate listeners. It's not that I don't know what societal and institutional racism are. I know. I know what those terms mean, and I know those things exist. Written about it. However, the issue is, what are their effects? How much of an effect do those things have? Just pointing them out isn't enough. What kind of effect do they have? I think people exaggerate. I've been saying that for 20 years. What about the wealth what, gap? Hmm? What, what about Most the of that is a myth. Gap. Most of that is a, is, is a myth. I don't know if that is as much of an enabler as the other two things, but yes, there is that idea that, what is it? Black people are paid 59 cents on the dollar compared no. to a white person. It's just not No, true. that's not what I'm referring to. It's black people have fewer assets. They, they Oh, you know, wealth. The, the median wealth oh, holding wealth. of the black family is one-tenth of the median white family. Well, if isn't the look, answer if, to that that it's, it hasn't been long enough for that to change? If you look at it, the arguments anyway, for reparations, they, they, they're not about the cops and, and they're not about voting rights. The arguments for reparations are largely about redlining, uh, the value of housing being suppressed, uh, you know, uh, wealth, you know, the labor of the slaves having been uh, expropriated and the, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, being uh, gutted in a in a pogrom and mm-hmm. other such instances of this sort. They are they are material deprivation as a consequence of historical mistreatment type arguments. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm not sure that your characterization of the cops and and voting is 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 entirely. You think that that reparations argument is as important beyond a certain chattering class circle to which we, be, we we belong. The reason I'm not bringing that yeah. up is because I feel like it doesn't go all that far beyond our little world. Maybe I'm wrong, though. And one way that one thing that would indicate that I'm wrong is that Ta-Nehisi Coates's whole star started rising largely on the basis of that argument. And that argument was not about the cops and it wasn't about voting rights. And so That's that means people certainly cared 
I wonder if anybody really believes that that could be fixed is another issue. No matter what kind of reparations happened or didn't happen, there would never be a period at the end of that sentence, as opposed to the voting issue where there theoretically could be if Republicans just stopped that. And the issue with the cops, if the figures changed and practice changed, I'm thinking, I'm thinking out loud here. I take your point. Yeah. Just reparations to me often seems like kabuki. The city of Mm -hmm. Evanston just passed an ordinance of some kind, uh, setting aside some funds for under the Mm -hmm. guise of reparations. I'm not sure. And the smart take is not enough, not enough. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Every city and town now is going to be in the reparations business. I mean, and it'll always be not enough. You know, the, no, the people we're talking about would never allow that it mattered. And so that's always going to be a minuet. It's going to be people dancing around. I can't see how any reparations that could actually happen would lead people to say, okay, it was done. It would always be, this was just the beginning, not enough because of this mindset that needs to be fed. So I think voting in the police is a little bit more concrete, but maybe not. It's an, it's an interesting thought. Does this connect back to the subject that we started with, which was what happened to the old school civil rights organizations? Why have they become so weak? And <laughs> Like what would they do? Yeah. What would they I mean, be about? I think what? that they would be about the drug war. That's my take on the cops. And um, I don't know. Yeah. If there were a, an NAACP and a National Urban League that really mattered in the way they used to, and I hate to say this, and maybe we're going to take some flack for saying this about them, but I think they know what we mean. Maybe the voting issue would be something, well, you don't think so, but I would say maybe the voting issue is something they could take on in a really vigorous way. That would be something that they would get behind the way they used to. For, well, I would hope you, it would be for different but I'm not saying it wouldn't be fertile ground for an organization to try to base their activities on. I'm just saying I don't think at the you know, given the scale of things that we could talk about, which are problems for African-Americans, that uh, the suppression of our access to the ballot box is a major infringement upon our rights. I, I don't think that that's the case. But, you know, I'm, I realize I'm way out of step in saying so. I say get people IDs and forget about it. You know, I said that once to Al Sharpton. I was he was marching somewhere and I said, well, Reverend Al, what about, you know, all this is well and good, but. Why does this conversation seem to presume that it would be so impossible to get people like this, the IDs? You know, I said I was a little, little disturbed at the notion that it's too hard for black people to follow precise rules. And he said that it was a double thing, that you have to do that, but then you also have to stop people from above with, from you know trying to get people not to vote by creating all these rules in the first place. So I know what you mean, yeah. Well, the ironies abound. I mean, right now, uh, some of the big banks are putting uh, big money into uh, trying to assist the development of financial institutions to which African-Americans would have access because there's so many unbanked. They don't have checking accounts. They don't have savings accounts and whatever. Well, they're not going to be able to get an account without an ID. So so Mm -hmm. no one's going to tell a bank, you can't ask people for an identification before you open an account. The, the the marginalization of people who don't ac- have access to mainstream institutions of financial intermediation uh, is uh, something that can't be overcome without having people the capacity to document their uh, their bona fides of who they are, where they live, and so forth and so on. It's, it's just an absolute necessity for participating in the modern social economy. 
So, you know, uh, anyway. Uh, what are we going to do here, John? We're going to talk on and we're going to call it a day. I think that we have reached our end for today. Yeah. Um, we can continue, hopefully, much, much sooner rather than later. But, yeah, two, I think we've done about an hour, which is about two weeks. the proper length. Uh, we have left untouched a big subject, which maybe we can come to, uh, which is what's happening, what is social media doing to the way in which we academics evaluate each other and assess the significance of what we do. If I have mm-hmm. 200,000 followers, how many followers do you have at Twitter, John? Something like that. I got, a, I uh, got 145. 000. You got more than me. I got 100,000. You got 145. You're younger That's than me. That's good. Yeah, I think 100 is pretty pretty good. I'll, I'll you know, whatever. I, I love Should I get I any credit? That. Should I get any credit for that? And when it comes time to assess my contribution to the, you know, the intellectual vitality of American culture, uh, am I doing my job if I put out a thoughtful commentary or analysis via a Substack newsletter or uh, a social media tweet or Facebook post uh, instead of in a referee? Uh, instead of being a refereed journal. I mean, there's some bloggers out there who are technically adept in economics who are, you know, really, really very smart. Uh, Tyler Cowen, I think of as one, but there are others. Brad DeLong. Uh, yeah, Brad DeLong like is that. good. Rajiv Sethi at Columbia, your colleague, is also quite good. There mm-hmm. are others. There are many others. Um, are they not making a contribution? And this, by the way, is global. It's not just in the United States of America that these communities are are formed. Sometimes the exchanges that go back and forth between people about technical uh, issues are quite well-informed and deep and illuminating. They're certainly of pedagogic value. You can use them in your teaching. Uh, do they not somehow contribute to the robustness and the fulsomeness of the, of the intellectual uh, Is the refereed article a kind of a relic, you know, back when technology wouldn't allow us to do more? Yeah, that's a... I wasn't going to go that far. I, I think the refereed article has its own value, but I, I want to allow for the possibility that there are other things that also have value. And should people get credit for it in terms yeah. of promotions, in terms of getting jobs? Because there's a part of me that sniffs. You know, I come from the late 80s. No, even though I now, I don't want to admit it, but I devote more of my energy to what we're talking about than the refereed articles. But I always think this doesn't count. This is not the real thing. It's just that, this is something that people actually read, damn it. And so, you know, you do it. But maybe we need to let go of that. Maybe, and maybe a person who does mostly that, and I'm not talking about Cornell West, but even somebody young starting out who does mostly that and maybe does maybe one refereed article every two years, maybe that should count now as a legitimate career as a teacher of, as a builder of knowledge. You know, that's the question. Uh, you're not alone, by the way, in sniffing. I mean, uh, as far as I can tell, none of these tenure and promotion committees are going to be much moved by someone pointing not out now, that no. they've, they've got a very active presence in social media. Uh, they're going to no, want it's books. it's a feather in your cap. Yeah, in the yeah. humanities, they're going to want books. Um, in the quantitative areas, they're going to want uh, referee journal articles. Uh, and yep. that's it. Maybe so, it shouldn't be that way. Maybe not. I think I've gotten myself in enough trouble by disagreeing with the zeitgeist on the voting suppression issue uh, that oh. I will have accomplished my goal of infuriating, of infuriating uh, enough people <laughs> with uh, what I have to say here at the Glenn Show. So, <laughs> uh, Thanks for listening, John. Thanks for listening, Glenn. Talk to you soon.
You bet. Bye now.